Welcome back, warriors. Tansei Sego Anibuju. Quay Ninda Luisi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty on Turtle Island. After last week's podcast, which was a special request by listeners, I got more requests to share some of my other events that were originally recorded on video. So today's Warrior Life podcast is from the book launch Winona LaDuke and I did together about our new books. Winona's book is called To Be a Water Protector, Rise of the Windigo Slayers. And mine is Warrior Life, Indigenous Resistance and Resurgence, both by Fernwood Publishing. The dual book launch event was called Indigeneity, Colonialism and COVID-19, Land Defenders and Water Protectors in a Pandemic Age. And it was facilitated by our friend, Dr. Negon Sinclair. The event was also co-hosted by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Manitoba, and the University of Manitoba's Department of Native Studies. Students from the University of Manitoba got to ask questions along with the other participants at the end of what was originally a live YouTube event that originally aired November 25th, 2020. But before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to quickly let you all know that I have officially and finally joined TikTok. You can subscribe to my account at pp2cool. That is pp, the number two, c-o-o-l. I can't sing or dance, but what I do offer is my latest take on the news called PAM News. It's a daily blast of the day's top stories and some of the most ridiculous political happenings. All right, now straight into this double book launch podcast. Hello and welcome everyone to Indigeneity, Colonialism and COVID, Land Defenders and Water Protectors in a Pandemic Age. My name is Molly McCracken. I'm the Manitoba Director of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and we are honoured to be co-presenting this event today with renowned public intellectuals Winona LaDuc and Pon Pometer in conversation with Nigan Sinclair. We are broadcasting from Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota and Dene people, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. The hydroelectricity powering my computer comes from Northern Manitoba, Treaty 5 territory, and the water that sustains us here comes from Treaty 3 territory. As Treaty people, we acknowledge the damage of the past and present and commit to working in meaningful partnership with First Nations, Métis and Inuit people. The Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Manitoba, works in solidarity with Indigenous people as a charitable, non-partisan, non-profit research institute. We work to advance the truth and reconciliation calls to action and the murdered and missing Indigenous women, girls and two-spirited people's calls to justice. As progressive allies, we stand with land defenders at Wet'suwet'en and in many other actions. And we were horrified at the violence against the Mi'kmaq fishers that took place during COVID, among many other acts of violence and injustices facing indigenous people. We were so pleased that Winona LaDuke and Pam Pometer agreed to speak in conversation with Nigon Sinclair to this moment and where indigenous people and allies can go from here. The struggle for decolonization continues 
how has the pandemic changed it or not? That's what I'm looking forward to hearing about today. I wanted to just take a moment to thank our event sponsors for your support and helping make this event possible. The Champion Level Sponsors, Assiniboine Credit Union, Fernwood Publishing, the Winnipeg Foundation, Sustainer Level Sponsors, the University of Manitoba Native Studies Department, the University of Winnipeg Indigenous Studies, Harry Daniels Speaker Series, the University of Winnipeg Students Association, and the Manitoba Research Alliance. I'm very pleased to introduce your host for today, Negan Sinclair, Professor in Native Studies at the University of Manitoba. And Negan is an award-winning writer, editor, and activist, and has a regular column in the Winnipeg Free Press. Thank you so much for hosting our event today. Negan, over to you. Okay. So, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to uh, greet you from Treaty 1 territory. Thanks to Molly uh, and the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives Manitoba office and also all of the national supporters as well that help with that great organization um, for hosting today's event on the YouTube channel. Um, I'm coming to you from the Native Studies Department at the University of Manitoba and uh, uh, it's this is our weekly colloquium. So our, our we've combined several different events all happening at the same time. So not only is today an amazing opportunity to hear from two inspiring, brilliant, important thinkers of our generations, really two of the most important thinkers of our generation, but it's also an opportunity to witness some of the partnerships that we do here in Native Studies at the University of Manitoba, working with different organizations in the city, as well as publishers, uh, researchers, and grassroots people, frontline people who are doing great work in the area of protecting our lands and waters and our territories. And also talking about this incredible complex time that we live in. Um, as I say about this time, uh, nobody prepares for a pandemic. Uh, so we're all kind of figuring out as we go. And uh, it's a, a very complex time. It's also a time in which we're thinking very deeply about all of our relatives who are struggling out there. Um, I have a family member who this morning uh, woke up with symptoms and is currently getting a test right now. Um, I also uh, think deeply about uh, Fred Sask uh, the Saskamoose who passed away yesterday, one of uh, a great, uh, our great elders and thinkers, as well as many of the other people within our community who are, uh, you know, Wayne Mason comes to mind as someone who's struggling with COVID and uh, experiencing all of the, the struggles that our relatives are. And of course, all of our relatives in Opasquia Cree Nation as well. So miigwech to all of you for coming today. Uh, we're going to have a great hour, hopefully an inspiring hour, a uh, breakout of your day in which you can hear from some brilliant uh, people who have uh, created two new books. So while we have a rather formal title for today, talking about indigeneity in the time of COVID, um, this is also meant to be a book launch, uh, two book launches. Uh, and so we'll be hearing from our writers or from our, uh, from our uh, panelists in just a minute. Uh, but this is an opportunity for you to hear about their books and to hear about uh, two great books with Fernwood Publishing, uh, who is a wonderful, amazing publisher out just uh, west of us here in Treaty One. Uh, they do national research, some of the most cutting edge research on indigenous studies uh, and native studies throughout the country. And so we're very happy to partner with them for this event as well. Um, so now that we are here, uh, let's get right 
to it. Uh, not only are we joined, of course, by our panelists, but uh, before we begin, I just want to say greetings to our students uh, at the University of Manitoba who are also taking this as a class. Um, and so we have uh, five amazing uh, PhD master's students from our department who are also joining us today. So if you happen to see a face you don't recognize somewhere on your screen, uh, although we are asking people to turn their screen off for the presentations, uh, that is who's speaking is wonderful uh, Indigenous graduate students who are doing uh, really innovative work in our department. So. So let's get started, shall we? Uh, so today, uh, we're very privileged to have two of um, not only the leading thinkers of our generation in terms of Indigenous studies, uh, in terms of nationhood, in terms of sovereignty and the protection of our lands and waters, uh, people who have worked at the front lines, but they've also worked in academic institutions, professional institutions. Uh, we're very honored to have two remarkable people uh, who I'll start off by talking, I'll, I'll start somewhat locally and then I'll move to uh, internationally. And so the first uh, speaker that we have for today is uh, a Mi'kmaq scholar, uh, legal analyst, lawyer, um, an advocate, um, a writer and researcher who I've worked with for a very long period of time going back to the days of Idle No More. Uh, she's a professor at Ryerson University, also uh, has done uh, really important things in thinking and getting us all to think about what is activism, has formerly run for National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, uh, has done uh, so many different things I could begin to describe, but here's the, some of the things that you'd see most recently. Um, she does a wonderful kids podcast for young activists uh, who no doubt she'll talk a little bit about today. She does also an, a, a podcast on Indigenous issues called Warrior Life, which is also the name of her book. And I wanted to share very briefly the uh, cover of her book, which we'll hear, be hearing about today. It's called Warrior Life, Indigenous Resistance and Resurgence. And it's a, uh, it's a book that spans many different topics and thoughts about the issues of activism, uh, land protection, and then also kindness and love and generosity. And, uh, and her name, of course, is Pamela Palmiter, uh, who uh, none of you probably need to be introduced to. But what I can say is that not only is she a fierce advocate and speaker on media platforms across uh, Turtle Island. She's also an incredible friend and mentor to me and to many others in the field. Uh, she's been an advocate that supported so many of us in this uh, this field. For many of us, particularly who uh, who need a lot of support when we first enter into the mainstream world of media. And she's very, uh, I can remember all of the kind words she offered to me and to other people, uh, particularly in the days of Idle No More, uh, when we were, many of us were doing that for the first time. And so uh, we're very honored to have Pam here. Uh, the second speaker uh, is, been someone who's known me since I've been very young, uh, and I hope that she doesn't tell any too, any too many stories of me when I was very young, uh, but I've known her since I've been a kid um, because she's also participated in the ceremonies, uh, the ceremonial lodge that I attend in Bad River, the Three Fires Medewin Society. Um, Winona LaDuke is a leader in so many different regards. She's a water protector. Uh, she's a, uh, a parent and an auntie uh, and a a person who has been at the front lines of so many different struggles. She's also a former vice presidential 
uh, nominee in the U.S. election. So considering we've just come from this very contentious U.S. election, I wonder if she'll have anything to say about that. And and uh, this is her latest book. It's called To Be a Water Protector with uh, the Rise of the Windigo Slayers and is with Fernwood Publishing. And she comes from White Earth in northern Minnesota. And for those of you on this side of the 49th parallel, uh, that border that seems to divide us or pretends to divide us, um, we may not have always heard of some of the grassroots work that she's done in terms of food sovereignty as well, and the ways in which she's been able to grow traditional Indigenous food uh, and share that amongst her community as well. So uh, I'm going to invite Pam and Winona to both uh, open up your screens or open up your, vi your videos if you can. There you are. I see Pam and uh, Winona. Maybe she, maybe Winona was like, okay, oh, there she is. Okay. We, we were quite dark before, so I wasn't sure if... Uh... <laughs> so, bonjour and welcome to both of you. Welcome to the Native Studies Colloquium. Welcome to the uh, to this presentation with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. It's nice to see both of you. Thanks, Nigan. Bonjour, Wonderful. nice to see you both as well. Um, so, what we're going to do is we're going to start... Uh, I'm going to sort of uh, start off by with Pam. And uh, what we could do, Pam, is uh, because this is a book launch and, I, and I've, I've, I'm going to encourage people to check out the book, I'm going to put the link in the, in the chat while Pam is talking. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about your latest book, Warrior Life, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what's in it. And if you don't mind, if you could just share a little passage uh, on what, get, give people a little taste of what that book is about and, and feel free to also give greetings to our students and to those who are watching on YouTube Live. Hi everybody on YouTube Live and all of the awesome students. I mean, you're going to be doing this in just a matter of a few years and you're so lucky to have someone like Negon to be mentoring you because he too mentors me. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much we are all coming together um, as communities, as nations, um, all over Turtle Island to work on things like this. And I'm really excited to be here with Winona LaDuke. I mean, it's not in person and someday I hope I get to meet her in person, but honestly, I am, I'm such a fan of her work and, and what she does to defend all of us. And it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I love how we're, you know, bridging the North and South part of Turtle Island together today to talk about this, both land defense and water protectors. So thank you. Um, and I'm coming to all of you today from the sovereign territory of the Mississaugas of Scugog, who've never had their land issues uh, addressed either. Uh, and I'm really excited to talk about my book. So Warrior Life, thank you Fernwood Publishing for helping me with another book because the previous one was Indigenous Nationhood. Oh, I guess I could have just pointed to them here. Um, but these two books really go together. So the first one, Indigenous Nationhood, was really kind of focused on exercising our voices, no matter what the trolls or haters are saying, that in exercising our voices, we're helping to educate, inform, and empower other people and raise the alarm. Because don't forget, that's always been a really important part of who we are as nations, raising the alarm on what's happening, uh, a pending invasion, a danger in our territory, uh, things that are happening. And we have been trying to raise the alarm. So I thought it was really important to really focus on and that aspect in the, in the first book. And in the second book, it's, you know, also continuing to raise our voices, but 
really how to translate that into action. So, you know, once people learn more, they want to do more. And what is that doing? So you still have to have all of the background knowledge about what's the problem, what's the root cause of the problem, so you know what the solutions are, but then to take action on those solutions. We often stop at, oh, look, we have a problem and have some recommendations without fully understanding what the root cause is or how to translate that into action. So this is really about action and honoring all of the people on the ground who risk everything to do that for us, despite being vilified, despite being targeted, surveilled, monitored, arrested, threatened, experiencing violence. I mean, this is significant work that they're doing and you don't get famous from it. You don't get paid from it. You don't get to be a million dollar board of director on a massive company. This is about really saving our future for our people. And I so I thought, you know, in those two ways, these books are harmonious. And then the other thing was really, the first book was during the Harper era. I mean, the horrible, horrible Harper era. Uh, you know, this 10 years of literally a war on First Nations in particular. And so the second book is really during the Trudeau era. And by reading them both, you can ask yourself the question, what's changed? Some things have changed. You know, this book will point out, yeah, there's been a bit of a change in rhetoric and rhetoric is important. These are messages to society, but ultimately, What's the fundamental difference between a racist and aggressive guy not giving you your land back or a charming GQ guy not giving you your land back? It's fundamentally the same thing. And if you look at pipelines as an example, you won't see any fundamental difference north, south of the border, who's in office. And that's what um, this book really talks about. And I do have a passage Hopefully it's it's not too long, um, but it's from the very beginning of the Warrior Life book. And it kind of goes like this. <clears throat> There's been a changing of the guard in Canada's colonizing governors from conservative to liberal, but they still preside over a racist, patriarchal country that remains fully engaged in the violent colonization of both indigenous lands and bodies. Ongoing racism and violence by the state and all of its agencies is the direct root cause of all of the suffering in so many of our families, communities, and nations. The extent of the damage that has been and continues to be done by Canada's colonizing governors and their corporate beneficiaries has led to a massive loss of life since contact. There is no doubt that Canada pre and post Confederation has engaged in a manifest pattern of conduct that reflects an intention to destroy Indigenous peoples spiritually, culturally, and physically. There's only one word that can possibly hope to encapsulate the centuries-long targeted campaign of violence, dispossession, and oppression of Indigenous peoples on Turtle Island. Genocide. And we're not talking about a history of genocide. We are talking about the greatest human rights crisis facing Canada today, right now. This insight into genocide as ongoing crimes and human rights violations against Indigenous peoples is critical to empowering Canadians to see through the false narrative created by politicians. The problem isn't liberal or conservative. 
And the sooner we understand that, the better prepared we'll be to hold Canada to account. Warrior Life covers all of these issues, exposing the contradiction between Trudeau's so-called reconciliation agenda and his failure to address ongoing genocide. While Trudeau convinced many Canadians of his commitment to renewing the relationship with Indigenous peoples based on a nation-to-nation -nation relation that respects Indigenous rights, his government has done anything but that. His nation-to-nation -nation relationship has skipped over the actual rights holders and sovereign Indigenous nations. He has instead chosen to maintain the status quo, often with the support of national Aboriginal organizations. At every opportunity he had to show Canada respect for Indigenous rights, he dashed those hopes with grave violations of our rights. From buying a pipeline to trying to defeat Indigenous lands to failing to address the public safety crisis of sexualized violence against Indigenous women and girls, reconciliation has turned out to be a lie. Thus, the story of our resistance at the grassroots level continues. That's great. I had to unmute. I had to unmute myself. I was like, I was in. I was so like into it. I was thinking. I kept thinking to myself, like, um, are is there plans for a uh, uh, like an audio book? Yes. There should be an audio book. There is. I'm recording it right now. They keep well, telling me to calm down, but it's really hard when you start reading. I can't calm down. Reading mode. It's uh, very passionate, and of course, you know, having been on a number of you know APTN and uh, CBC and stuff with you. A number of times. Uh, I mean, your passion comes across so vividly, but it's nice to see it coming across in the writing. You don't see too many uh, a book, you know, book launches where you see sort of that passion coming out. A lot of people just sort of read it. And I mean, your uh, performative nature is also incredibly important because it's, it's, it also shows how much deeply invested you are in the issues and how passion, how the passion uh, is critically important because we're talking about life and death situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, Miigwech, thank you so much. Um, I can't wait. I will, I, of course, I know this book very well because, uh, first of all, we've been friends for a number of years. And so I, I see it when it goes in the op-ed uh, in the Globe and Mail and other things like that. Um, so I've seen this book evolutionize, but it's really nice to see it come to the surface. Um, I also uh, wrote the foreword to the, to the, to the book. So um, I think it's just important for people to know that. They don't think, oh, well, you know, uh, they see it later. Oh, another Negon thing. Um, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> no, and actually, I should have said that. Thank you, Negon. And everybody who reads it, I am sure you're going to cry. I cried when I read it the first time. It's I'm just, just saying that it's, it's beautiful. Uh, I've been involved in this book really from the beginning, and watching it evolutionize has really been remarkable. And uh, and it is just a culmination of, I would say, probably, I mean, going even past the first book, going seven, eight years worth of work, plus all of your legal scholar history, and a really remarkable book. Anyone who, it's like a go-to book in Native studies already. And so a really critically important and wonderful. <clears throat> uh, let's uh, turn over to uh, Winona. And uh, we're gonna come back to Pam uh, after we hear from Winona here. Um, as I've introduced and I've talked a little bit about Winona, um, uh, if you could just share a little bit about your book, um, share a little bit about uh, what it is that was the impetus to this book. This must be, how many books do you have now? Is it 128? No, no, 
I think I think I'm about seven, you know, something like that, give or take a lot of rambling in between, you know. I have a Winona LaDuke shelf in my office. Oh, that's good. So, I'll see what I can do. You know, you can have several copies to fill up if that's good, you know. You know, I always laugh. I'm sure Pam has the same challenges, you know, because I look at all these white guys that write and write and write. And I was like, guess you got a lot of time, huh? <laughs> well, the, the book that you wrote, which was I'm like stealing moments. I'm like writing on little napkins at restaurants. I'm like getting up at like 6 a.m. before anybody says grandma or mom. And I'm like making sure I get my little writing done so I'm like not crabby, you know. And then these people like, yeah, I would like to write more books, but I get all busy and jeepers. I spend like seven years writing about that damn Enbridge. Don't you think I'd like to write about something besides Enbridge? I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, you're. I was just going to say that the, the book that really like impacted me, well, the Winona LaDuke Reader is still my go-to by my desk. I read it all the time. But the the, the militarization book that you wrote about the militarization of Indian country has been re really pivotal for us because we're watching the military come into First Nations right now um, in, a, in a helping role, but not always in the role I think that people are understanding the larger impact, which that book really indicates that the militarization of Indian country. But I mean, that was your the last book. This book today, if you could just share a little bit about the this book, about being a water protector, um, also, if you could just describe uh, what does it mean to be the Windigo Slayer, uh, and uh, I'll eventually ask you if you don't talk about it now, and share a little bit of an excerpt from the book, if you could. Sure, no thanks, and um, hello, my relatives, happy to be with you all today um, as I sit here on the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota, and um so I wrote this book over the past years. You know, I write all the time. I like to write more than just about anything else. And so I'm writing and writing, but I'm like usually writing for like a tribal paper or maybe I'm writing for the Fargo Forum. And then sometimes I try writing these academic articles. Oh, they take a lot of footnotes. Oh my God. And uh, so, you know, it's just like this collection. And then, you know, in the midst of this, you know, we ended up in these epic battles, which, you know, everybody's in kind of the same battle. It's battles over... Can we drink the water? You know, it's battles over, you know, how's how's our, our relatives going to live? The ones that have wings or fins or roots or paws. And so, you know, I, I found that I was, you know, in, in my in my privilege of both travel back when I used to fly, but also just being on the ground. I, I got a lot of stories. So I started writing them and writing them and writing them. Do you know, because, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, history need to be wrote, written up. You know, we need to tell our history. We need to tell these stories because uh, that's who's doing it. You know, and so this book is really about that. It's written kind of in the thick of all of this stuff. And, you know, that uh, it's, you know, you ta you're talking to me about that militarization book. That was so hard to write. It was like no fun, you know, because you're talking about like basically a really messed up situation of the U.S. military, largest military in the world. And there's like, you know, it's like endless, endless, you know, and. And you get into these situations where you're trying to write, but there's like so much going on around you. You have to like somehow figure out if you can distill it. And so this book, a lot of it was written at Standing Rock. A lot of it was written precursing Standing Rock. And a lot of it was written in the Enbridge battles, you know. Um, and um, so it's, you know, it's my, my, you know, trying to collect myself in this book or to collect the pieces of myself that I have scattered <laughs> to the wind into one place to say, this is the history that I saw happening. 
you know, these are some people that did pretty amazing things. So I'm going to do my best to tell, tell some of their stories. And so, you know, this book spans mostly um, the past four years of water protector battles from Mauna Kea, you know, to the Getsenwetsowetan, you know, a couple of big pipeline battles there on, on uh, Standing Rock and on um, the never-ending Enbridge battle. Never-ending, these guys, you know. I was like, come on, you guys should get a new plan. You know, they spend so much time on the last tar sands pipeline. I mean, that's one of the, the chapters is called the last tar sands pipeline. Looks like Canada's trying to figure out who gets to be the last tar sands pipeline. You know, the very end of the fossil fuel era, someone wants to get, just saddle some communities with their latest bad idea at the very end. You know, and so it's called, it's kind of like the last dinosaur, you know, or whatever, the last dragon rider or whatever. It's like the last tar sands pipeline. You know, so that's this writing all kind of stuff from problems to solutions. And, uh, you know, I was, I was laughing because I really, you know, I don't know, I thought you were a lot more academic, Pamela. I know you're super academic, but I was like, wow, she's like all over the place talking about this stuff. I wish I had you as a professor when I was in school, my God. You know, I had these all, you know, all old guys from Harvard, all white guys mostly, my God, you know. So I'm, I'm happy to be here and, uh, and I laugh because, uh, you know, as you know, I spent a lot of time in Canada. I was married up in James Bay to Randy Kapashisit. And so, um, you know, I got this like, and my children are Canadians, if that's what we want to say. They're, you know, they're, they're Anishinaabe and Cree. But, um, you know, so I spent a lot of time like going back and forth across the border and thinking about this, like, like what Pam was saying is like, you know, what's the difference? You know, what brand of colonialism would you like this week? <laughs> You know, what's the latest like rendition that they're giving? I was I was looking at the um, you know, now what we have is the Boy Scouts are are getting their uh sued for sexual abuse. Did you see that here in the States? And I was like thinking, we got all kind of Boy Scout camps on Indian reservations, because you know they want to grow up and be Indians. So I was like, you know, so it's like never-ending story. And you know, sometimes I think you can't make this stuff up. You know, I mean I would write fiction, but what would be the point? You know, there's just like these like incredible stories. You're like, like the pipelines. You know, I really like what you're talking about. You know, I, I call the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I just call that Trudeau West. You know, might as well just call it Trudeau West. I mean, nobody wanted a pipeline. Kinder Morgan made off like bandits, sold it for like 700% more than they than they put into it, right? And then, and then you know, because we were writing, working on this idea down here, this kind of a comedy, a comedy of like, well, what if some Indians said that they wanted a pipeline and they were gonna take that pipeline they were gonna put it through downtown Duluth just to show it'd be like the indigenous pipeline council or something. And then I look like two months later and they're doing it up in Canada. You know, Trudeau has convinced some people that they really need the liability of like a $7 billion pipeline project, although their per capita income is like poverty level for third world countries. I can't make it up, so might as well just write about it. Might as well just write about it. <laughs> so, you know, that's this book. A lot of my writing about things I found that I found were like absurd and crazy. And I did come up with something to read, but I have to like read from the paper. I had to go print it off. And um, this is the first time I actually saw it in print for, you know, and I, I don't have my cool copy of the book yet. I heard it's coming though. It'd be like Christmas, you know. Did you want me to read something, Nikon? I'm on mute there. Yeah, if, if you could just read uh, just a small passage, something to give people a little taste or a little flavor. Okay, we try this one here. This is called Turning on a Dime. 
hold on, someone's walking in. I once sat jigabig on the shore of a harbor in Sitka, Alaska. That is for sure one of my favorite haunts in the world, an island in Alaska, a peninsula of amazing beauty, grace, and clingets. From the shore, I watched as eagles flew in by the dozens to fish for salmon, returning for their spawning, bears in the mountains coming to dine. The town is interesting and quaint in a manner of speaking, full of clingit, Russian and Orthodox structure, architecture and fishing vessels. And then there's the water and the land. It's really breathtaking. So as I watched in wonder, a very large cruise ship came into view in my left peripheral vision. Startled and amazed by the sheer size and how abruptly it changed my idyllic view, I watched that ship riveted by its course and wondering how it would maneuver. And then the miracle occurred. The ship completed a 180 degree turn on a dime. A cruise ship on a dime, or maybe a quarter. After all, it was a cruise ship. The point was that the ship changed course and reversed. Hmm. That is really what we must do, really at some level. This predatory extractive economy must do just that, and it can be done. Ecologically is what I am speaking about. It's also essential in terms of national political thinking, the trends in healthcare, education, compassion, and ethics. All that's got to change. It's beyond the Green New Deal or Canada's leap agenda. The next economy is, after all, about cooperation, not conquest. It's also about cooperation, not competition. It's about survival, not conquest. It's about restoring balance and relationships. So that's an excerpt from a chapter. But, you know, I go on to talk about how, you know, the world is changing. And, you know, you can make some changes. And, and the fact is, is that we do need to be that cruise ship and turn perhaps at a 180 degree angle and figure out how to do something way better, like energy efficiency, organic agriculture, the works. Uh, awesome. And the uh, I think it's pretty funny how you turned a cruise ship story uh, into a story about activism. <laughs> like, uh, definitely. Uh, what was like the weirdest thing I ever saw? Uh, it's a pretty, I mean, when that's about, and the metaphor is just leaps, leaps off the page. Uh, I, I do have a copy of the book, although an e-version. Um, and so I got a chance to look through it. And one of the, my favorite things of is your uh, remarkable generosity with uh, spanning international work. Or, you know, because I think oftentimes this border is constructed in such a way that it really divides us uh, ideologically, not just physically. And I think up here in, uh, even though we're very close, I'm in Duluth all the time. We've been to ceremonies together for many times together. Um, and my, my father and my parents, by the way, say hello, they say bonjour. And, uh, and the, but yet you do bring in work from all across Turtle Island in the, just the opening pages. I saw Isaac Murdoch is in there. And of course, Isaac did a wonderful uh, mural outside of our department at the uh, University of Manitoba uh, with Christy. And uh, just, just your generosity with including other voices is really, I think, an Indigenous pedagogy that I think some of our students can enjoy upon getting a cop copy of the book. Um, maybe what I could do is I could pull Pam back in here uh, and we can have just a you brief discussion. You know, Nico, can I say something as we bring Pam, my, my sister from the North, back in? You know, I, I do consider myself somewhat of an internationalist. You know, in the privilege of the fossil fuel economy, I have traveled the world. You know, so I've been to Zapatista communities in Chiapas, you know. I've been to places like the happiest country in the world, Vanuatu. I was like, why are y'all so darn happy, you know? 
I mean, you know, so if you if you get this little bit of privilege that someone bestowed upon me, I certainly don't have money for plane tickets. Anybody who knows me knows that. But, you know, say you learn something interesting or say you saw something like, you know, that looked just like your village, you know, then you feel that and they feel that. And I like telling those stories because they are stories of people everywhere that are facing the same things and also have remarkable solutions and courage. And I think that's a good, I mean, it's a good point to, to say we are in the middle of a pandemic and both of you comment in the writing of your book, both books, that you did, it, part of it was constructed during the pandemic or the final stages happened during the pandemic. Uh, the, it, it's interesting to think about the work that we're doing as Indigenous peoples, considering how quickly Indigenous studies uh, has moved to this global outward looking field that's really looking on a global scale, dealing with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, dealing with big, huge international struggles involving pipelines that cross borders, uh, a world economy that's hell-bent on stealing Indigenous lands and resources. That's what Victoria Tole Corpus uh, has reminded us of. There's no such thing as ethnic conflicts. There, there are conflicts with Indigenous peoples protecting their lands, families, and nations. Uh, and how this pandemic has really forced us to look locally uh, and to really focus on the local, but then also remind us that the, the 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 international, the global economy still continues. All the pipeline projects, for example, still continued uh, under the pandemic, even though the economies were so-called shut down. All the pipeline projects continued construction in Manitoba here, the Manitoba Hydro projects all continued. In fact, they got exceptions to the rule uh, for health guidelines. Um, what is perhaps the most important thing uh, you can say to Indigenous communities at this point, um, thinking about the pandemic and how it's devastated the Navajo, um, it's devastated uh, people, you know, the great here in Creek communities here in Manitoba. Uh, what, what can you say to Indigenous communities right now in terms of uh, about the COVID-19 pandemic and you know, your own experiences? We'll start with uh, Pam. Well, I'd say don't forget about our the power of our sovereignty, of our peoplehood, of our nationhood, of our self-determination, like whatever word you want to use, our collective. We're, we're stronger together. And by embracing all of the different backgrounds and all of the different skills of our people, not judging one another for being colonized because colonization is not our fault genocide is not our fault and we're trying to live through those sometimes troubled relationships that result from that we have to remember that every single person has something to contribute so while the land defenders are out there protecting our lands and waters we also need people behind the scenes supporting the land defenders and other people advocating in international forums and other people keeping an, a close eye on what federal provincial municipal or state governments are doing without our knowledge. I mean, literally at the height of the pandemic, when everyone's focus was on what's going to be the impact on our communities, you had multiple states, 
multiple provinces, not just allowing all of these massive extractive industry projects to continue, but changing laws and legislation and regulations and authorizations to give them multiple exemptions to continue their work or speed it up and even worse, not be held accountable for things that happened during the COVID period because it would be such an undue hardship. I think those were Trump's words. And so if you think about it that way, there's no one person. Why Nona can't do it all? I mean, how is she going to write 120 books if we expect her to be the only one on the front lines? We literally need people every skill level, every background, you know, every level of experience doing our part in different forums. And I think that's the most important. And it was actually one of the most encouraging things that I've seen come out of the pandemic, the way that um, the Indigenous nations or tribal governments uh, took control over their own borders, the same with First Nations here, with land defenders who, despite all of the restrictions on gathering, made sure that they were still advocating and defending. And look at what happened after George Floyd, you know, at the height of the pandemic, when they thought we wouldn't be able to protest. Black and Indigenous peoples united in solidarity on both North and South of Turtle Island. And so I think, you know, the strength of solidarity, the strength of our sovereignty and our collective is what will make the change. And that takes it way out of the political realm of waiting for leaders to do it or political organizations to do it or others who have vested interest in the status quo. It's literally the people who will be our ultimate warrior who make the change. Yeah, I, I think that this moment, you know, has certainly shown us that uh, the systems don't work. I mean, that's pretty obvious. I mean, you know, there's been all this, um, you know, talk about uh, economies of scale and you need big food systems and you need big energy systems and you need global economies to produce things. And so you got shrimp that are raised in Scotland and deveined in China and will show up at a Costco near you. Mm. That's actually, that's what we're looking at. And, and I think 90% of the pharmaceuticals are now made in China. And so you have a, the, this, you know, it's kind of like the emperor has no clothes. Globalization showed, a, it, you know, is this, and globalization is also really fragile. <laughs> Turns out the, you know, and, and so what we learned from that, like my community, everybody just put in a lot more gardens. You know, the pandemic hit when we went into the sugar bush. That's what we did. So I went into the sugar bush with all these kids who were now quarantined and weren't allowed to school. And we were like, let's go, let's go make our medicines. Let's be outside. Let's have our first medicine of the year, you know? And then my community and communities of people across the countries began to garden. And we put in so much food. Like they say that food production, like seeds production quadrupled, you know? And so, you know, I think we began to look at like what, how you rebuild self-reliance as communities, because no guarantee someone's going to fix this one for you. And we, we did see those borders closing, you know, and I'm grateful to that because certainly, you know, the, the callousness of the United States, I mean, we're number one, you know, we're number one. We got that one really in spades, don't we, on the pandemic, you know, and particularly the places where Native people live, those are the places where there's the biggest outbreaks of COVID, and that's not because of Natives, that's because of Republicans, I mean, and pipeliners and all these people who refuse to wear a mask because their president didn't wear a mask. And so why should they, you know? And so 
hard hit by stupidity. I mean, a mask is like an IQ test for crying out loud. You know, <laughs> that's what it really is, you know. And, and so, you know, that is the kind of the lay of the land. Now, within that, you know, I, I really like what Erin Dottie Roy talks about. Erin Dottie Roy, the, the Indian writer, and she talks about pandemic as portal. And, and she says, in the history of the world, pandemics have forced societies to change. This one is no different. I mean, it brings societies to its knees, which is the case. You know, we were all like business as usual. We're going to go to town. We're going to go shopping. We're going to go buy this. We're going to do this. We're going to go on vacation. No, you ain't. <laughs> you ain't going to do anything. You know, you're going to stay home. You know, and so, but I was like right in there. I used to fly. Did you used to fly, Pamela? It's like, yeah. I lived in airports. <laughs> right. I talked to people in my village, you know, they're like, and I start sentences like, did you know I used to fly? And they all look at me like it's like some mythological thing that, you know, I took off of my Thunderbird or something. And I was like, yeah, I used to fly, <laughs> you know, that was then. No, I don't. Now I like, you know, cruise around my little village. I live within, you know, I go within like 20 miles here and there, except for that damn Ambridge line. I got to go up there and keep it. They're like 20 miles from my house, though, you know, very close, my local pipeline. You know, but, you know, what she said is, is that she refers to it as a portal. She says it's a change from one world to the next. And then she asks the question, do you want to go through the portal clean or do you want to bring your dirty skies, your data banks, your hatred, your prejudice, your avarice, you know, your dirty rivers, or you want to walk through clean? And for me, in this perspective, I mean, we have this moment where we are forced to take a breath. And in that moment of being forced to take a breath, I'm like, let us look where we are going. Let us say, what would it be to be a little more resilient? You know, so we're not like all in the panic. What would that look like? You know, it's not like we haven't lived through pandemics before. We are the, you know, we are, a, what, what's it called? A post-apocalyptic people. You know, we don't even, you know, our, we lost so many people. We don't even know what we lost. You know, so much, so much loss, so much loss, you know? And so, you know, we sit here and in some ways, I think that there is this absolute coherence that happens in this moment of crisis where you're like, what you gonna do? And I'm looking out there and I saw the same thing you did this year and you were just talking to George about George Floyd. I mean, I saw stuff happen, like how many years, how many years we try to get those Columbus statues taken down? Yes, yes. Oh my God, how many riots over the Columbus statues and they are all gone. So is those conquistadors, Oñate, gone. Confederate soldiers gone and the Redskins, the Washington Redskins, they're all gone too. You know, so there is a surge in social movements during a pandemic. And that is what we want to do is we want to keep pushing. That's what we want to do. And that's what Enbridge is going to find. I mean, in the midst of it, yes, Enbridge is trying to bring 4,200 workers into Northern Minnesota in the midst of a pandemic into counties that have four ICU units. And they're already full. So, you know, Canada, can you call off Enbridge? Just, you know, they got their permits. Just tell them to give it, a, just take a little chill. <laughs> so we can maybe get through the pandemic a little bit before they unfurl their horrible future for us, you know? So, you know, that, that there's all this complexity and I am just going to continue on planning for the harvest, you know, for, for the next year, my gardens and, and, and keeping my head low. 
one of the things that, I mean, uh, there's so many different things, like as you're both talking, I, I quickly want to sort of give people footnotes to what you're referring to, because all of this is in the books that you're talking about. So yeah. just to refer to what was said just a minute ago, uh, Pam's talking about the rate, the way racism impacts health. And we see that here in Manitoba, particularly, you know, uh, 14% is the test positivity rate in Manitoba, which by the way, uh, they, they closed schools in New York for a 3% test positivity rate. In Manitoba, we kept casinos open and for forever. Um, anyways, so 14% is the Manitoba app. On First Nations, 23%. That means one out of every four people are, be, are test, testing positive on First Nations for COVID-19. That, that isn't proof that racism kills, as you point out in an entire section in your book. Um, and then you at the same time, when, when you were talking a minute ago about, about giving blatant truths about the uh, speaking truth to power and that, that that pushing is resulting in change, your piece where you talk about uh, how do we grieve a river uh, the death of a river, sorry. And also uh, some of the great stuff that you're doing of talking about the Amazon and how many lessons we can learn from that involving activism and then change and standing up to colonialism and re you know, resistance movements. Uh, so important. I just wanted to people to know that this, the, what you just said uh, appears in the book as well. Now, but one thing both of you have that brings the book together, and I wanted to ask one question, then we have students who want to ask questions as well. Um, we've got three of them right in, in the queue at the moment. So um, so if you could be briefer on, the, uh, on this answer, uh, only because we want to get to the students as well. Uh, I want to ask you, both of you talk about peacemaking and uh, you call it love, you call it compassion. Uh, you really call it in your book, Pam, you talk about being a warrior because a warrior is not about evoking war. Warrior is about committing to community or, or creating the possibility of community or committing to elders and standing up for people who are disenfranchised. Uh, Winona, your first words of your book is, I have always been a water protector, and it's a result of my mentorship of being a water protector that I'm now more committed to commit to commitments of love and uh, community to being a grandmother than ever. So being a water protector teaches me how to be a better grandmother. Uh, can you speak briefly about the importance of peacemaking or that um, in this, in these books, on how they can appear talking about quite fierce truths, but at the same time are always coming from positions of love within your own cultures, ceremonies, traditions, uh, nations. Uh, start with Winona this time. You know, when I was uh, mumbling and writing, that's how I write. Sometimes I mumble. To be honest, I remember. Um, I was out in Oneida territory and Mark Paulus, he runs a school in, in Milwaukee, really great Native Academy. He took me, we were talking about the, uh, the uh, one dish, one spoon treaty. And, um, you know, that's what this kind of, this, this reminds me of, which is that, you know, a long time ago, Minwenja was like 1706 or something. The Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee made this treaty of agreement that said, you know, we've been fighting over all this stuff, the Ohio River Valley, all that. I said, you know what? We all got one dish. That's this land, this common land. That's our one dish. And uh, so let us act like we eat out of one dish. And then they said, uh, you know, the treaty was in wampum. And so they said it, of course, in much more eloquently. But then they said, we always also use one spoon, which as we know in our ceremonies, you know, in COVID, I have to change spoons, but you, you serve people. You serve people in ceremony, you know, 
And so that means your relatives. And so that's what it makes me think of is like that old, like that's what indigenous jurisprudence looks like. That's what indigenous peacekeeping looks like, you know, and that's a long time ago. But anyway, so there's my, there's my thinking on, on that's kind of what we need to return to is that we, it's, we must care for the commons. We must care for our water. We must care for each other. Well, you, you call it just, I mean, you, you call it how to be a better ancestor in the book. I mean, which is just a remarkable, amazing, it's four pages of just endless, really sharp thought of, of what is Indigenous pedagogy. So anyways, Pam, go ahead. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because in society in general, there's a real misunderstanding about what it means to be a warrior. Um, you know, in, in, you know, Canadian or American society or any other of these, um, you know, colonial countries, it's, they talk about war and violence and policing and, and, and all of that kind of very aggressive and violent ideologies. But for us, I mean, some of the warriors that I found to be the most powerful and the most strong, like the Haudenosaunee or the Mi'kmaq, for example, if you talk to the Haudenosaunee about what it means to be a warrior, they talk first about the great law of peace. And this is about love and commitment for their collective. And that's a really different kind of ideology. It speaks to a different set of values, but also a set of obligations. What does it mean to be a warrior for your collective and for the collective? And, and so that translates differently when you're talking about peacemaking. So peacemaking amongst, you know, our sovereign uh, nations, for example, that's treaties, it's it's confederacies, it's agreements, it's sharing, it's joint advocacy, it's solidarity. I mean, we're showing this kind of warrior love and peacemaking amongst one another, but we are also standing up in equal measure to Canadians and Americans who will ultimately benefit when we defend or assert human rights, when we talk about earth justice and how to protect the planet. I mean, that's important. But I think another part of you know, peacemaking and warriorhood that often gets overlooked is there's a lot of governments and corporations that have committed gross aggressions, violent aggressions against the planet, against the lands and waters and plants and animals, and those should be considered acts of war. So when we're talking about peacemaking as, you know, Indigenous warriors, it's also how do we, on behalf of those who have aggrieved the planet, engage in peacemaking with the earth, with the planet, and undo some of the harms that have been done. And one of the things that have come out of this pandemic, terrible, horrible losses. But one of the things that came out is proof positive with our very own eyes, what can happen if we adjust our actions? The waters ran clear, there was breathable air in other countries, animals reasserted territories in places we hadn't seen them in decades and decades. So it's not just about whether we believe in science or whether we believe in politics. The pandemic showed us that when we make peace with the earth and give it just a little bit of a rest, it has the power and the ability to reassert itself. And I think that's equally as important as amongst one another, peacemaking with the planet. Uh, again, uh, sections of your book that are so, I think, really important and, and, and draw upon this um, is the, you write a section about how not voting 
um, is an, is a commitment to nationhood. It's not it's not an abandonment of of uh, of a relationship with a, a colonial state, but it's a statement about indigenous sovereignty. And one thing I really love about that is is during this pandemic that I've witnessed. Um, the, the, for the deeper commitments communities make to their own sovereignty uh, to put up blockades to protect themselves ends up protecting everyone else and ends up saving the lives of non-Indigenous peoples because Indigenous communities uh, are committing themselves to medicine picking, to ensuring the language and culture continues, making um, check stops that then protect all these cottagers up the road. Um, I mean, it's remarkable to me, and we're seeing it evident now that uh, Indigenous sovereignty means everybody benefits. And I really love that idea. And it's a real innovative thing that I think we've perhaps was mis less understood during the during pre-pandemic days, but certainly is evident now. And we're certainly seeing this with some innovative ideas that's happening in the north of communities protecting themselves uh, here in Manitoba. Okay, um, I promise I get to a student. Uh, she's uh, She's been waiting patiently. So Adrian, if you could just turn your camera on for just a minute uh, and uh, I'll spotlight you. I know you're probably going to get embarrassed, but I'm going to spotlight you anyways. Uh, well, there you are. Okay. Uh, so if you could just, uh, uh, Adrian, very quickly introduce yourself. Uh, of course, we, we all know you in our department, but uh, Pam and uh, Winona might not know you. So, and then ask your question. I know you got to run as well. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Adrian. Um, I'm Anishinaabe from Kuchiching, um, but born and raised here in Winnipeg with Yugon. Uh, um, yeah, I'm nervous. You, I'm a big fan of both of you. So um, thanks for putting me on the spotlight, Nigon. <laughs> um, no, this is great. Um, I, I loved how you talked, um, Pamela, you talked about um, the idea of staying sovereign and that colonization was is not our fault and that shame is inherently colonial as well. And so I love this idea of bonding together um, through solidarity and staying sovereign. And um, while I agree that um, frontline work is the absolute, it's absolutely important. Um, I think this pandemic also brought up um, conversations around ableism, around mental health and around disability as well. Um, and so, um, yeah. And then also Winona, you mentioned too that in a way, we're kind of used to this pandemic because we have survived an apocalypse in many ways. So I guess my question is, is to you both, how do you both stay grounded and take care of community as an activist during a global pandemic? You're going to uh, answer uh, that first, sir? Yeah, go ahead. Winona, go ahead. Yeah. You know, there's, um, there's no easy answer, but, you know, I live, uh, you know, I live good. I live out in the woods on a farm, <laughs> you know, so you're like, it's pandemic out there, look pretty rough out there. Looks like uh, they're all going crazy out there. Oh yeah, I think I'll just stay here on my farm with my horses and my corn and my hominy and, uh, you know, grow some hemp. I mean, I don't want, you know, so, you know, I have this privilege that I live in my community and I'm actually kind of like, you could fully occupy yourself being a farmer, believe me. You know, so that's a little bit of my mental well-being and health. And then the other thing I, I do is, uh, you know, I found I find that, you know, I could I could say I get a lot of stress from the, the way that life is around me. But I always feel like doing something makes me feel better, whether it's a physical doing something, but also just like, you know, figuring out how to like 
shift the situation. So I have really, you know, I, I do see that there's a portal. <laughs> I see that the world's changed and I'm like, I'm all ready. I'm all ready, as you can tell, to, to uh, you know, take the reins. Our communities are ready to take the reins and, and make a new economy. That's, that's what I'm working on. Wait, Pam. Uh, although I think you've kind of downplayed the incredible food sovereignty projects that you work on uh, in terms of bringing back indigenous foods. Uh, but anyways, research Winona's work on indigenous food in remarkable. Anyways, go ahead, Pam. Um, well, that's that's a really common question. Uh, and we even asked that amongst ourselves. I'll be like, oh, Negon, what do you do? To, to kind of de-stress, decompress and, you know, take care of one another. And in fact, just the act of having that conversation amongst one another, sending each other supportive texts, you know, um, doing those kinds of, you know, reaching out and making sure that all of those people that are working on this know that we're there and not just the people on the so-called front lines, but also the people in our communities about making things open access. How do we make sure that our people get to benefit? I mean, many of these discussions would have been held in universities where you had to actually go and be there either as a student or travel there. And now one of the things from this pandemic is we have to communicate in a different way. And you're not being charged $100 to attend an event. This is free and open access and it's a two-way um, engagement and it also has allowed stuff that you don't see in public. So all of us, the groups that get together behind the scenes on Zoom and have a conversation about, okay, how do we handle this and that we're not, to know that we're not alone in it. And for me, I get the most joy out of seeing the social conflict, not violence, not suffering, not trauma, but the conflict the debate, the, the assertion of our rights, which other people see as conflict, because I know that we're still there, we're still asserting our rights and our sovereignty and we're defending ourselves. The times when I get most upset or depressed or defeated is when I don't see any conflict, no one having these conversations, because I know that in the history of the planet, that the most significant changes for human beings in the planet have come after sustained periods of conflict, what's perceived as conflict, disagreement, debate, um, you know, the planting the seeds of change. And so I actually get really energized from that. When I see our people marching in the streets, some people would say, oh, I wish our people didn't, you know, weren't marching in the streets. Thank goodness they are. Thank goodness there are still people willing to stand up. And to me, that's like medicine, kind of like the medicine you get from ceremonies or powwows or going back home, seeing that, knowing that we are all working together outside of politics based on, you know, we care about human life and we care about the life on the planet. And those two things can literally have the power to unify all of us. So um, I don't know if that answered your question. Uh, I think you're nodding a lot. So I think you're... Uh, okay. Uh, she's, the answer has been given. I know Adrian, you have to run, uh, but uh, do you want to say anything in response? Or? Yeah, just miigwech. Thank you so much. Awesome. Uh, there's a uh, there's there's a couple things I just that that uh, sprung to mind as you were talking. The first is that uh, 
during this time period, it's really been a time of reflection. Um, and part of that reflection has been turning back to our traditional stories and our teachings. And one of the things that I've done in, in Anishinaabe, and that's my research area, um, is looking at my own people and looking at creation stories, looking at the language. And I think we're going to have a language question, maybe just a minute here. But but the uh, our, our traditional stories about pandemics always talk about us turning toward one another not turning away from one another. And I think that the message has been largely in the large part that this whole movement towards individual property, you have to have Wi-Fi, for example, to attend university now. Um, people social distancing, turning away, separating from one another. That's all important, of course. And we had those parts of the stories too. We had quarantining measures in our traditional stories talking about pandemics and epidemics. But in every story, the solution is found by turning together committing more to one another. And that's what Pam's talking about and Winona's talking about is that you can do that by uh, turning towards our food systems, turning towards our traditional families, uh, the ways in which we think and we learn. And Pam's talking about speaking up and engaging more, not less, because we're social distancing. And I love all of that stuff. Um, we're going to pull in Nicole here. Uh, Nicole, uh, if you could un or, sorry, put your video on. There you are right there. Uh, you're going to get the spotlight treatment as well. So there you go. Uh, introduce yourself quick and then uh, feel free to ask your question. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm so happy to be here. So thank you so much for taking the time. And this is incredible stuff. So thank you for all of our collectives. Um, Pam, I love what you said about we really need to understand the root cause before we can really truly know the actions that we need to take. Uh, to lead, live that warrior life. And when I think it's great that you're, you decided why write fiction? Because you can't make this stuff up. It almost makes it a little bit easier in a sense. Um, and what I'm really getting to is just, I just love this idea of, of unity and unity within our own sovereign nations, whether you're Métis, Inuit, um, non-status or First Nations. It's just that we all share that common collective, and especially um, Winona, when you mentioned about us eating from that one dish, how important that is. And I guess what I'm wondering, through all that peacemaking and love and compassion, we really should be showing one another. I'm really wondering, what would you say in regards to our youth who don't necessarily have everyday role models in their life to really negate those really powerful emotions that they're feeling? Um, and a lot of the anger or the assumptions of what a warrior means about being a social justice warrior and how can we really balance that that anger and that knowledge of, of, of how we have been repressed as nations and then balancing that out with peacemaking and moving forward in good ways. Go ahead, Pam. I think that was mostly to you, but Winona, you can go after that. So go ahead. Well, I, I've learned from elders all over Turtle Island. Um, they seem to have given me the same kind of advice because of course, when I was younger, I was angry and passionate. And I would like to think that I still am very angry and passionate because of what the advice of the elders were is that every emotion is a good emotion. You know, society has tried to make us think that there are certain ways to be acceptable and behave and think and, and express yourselves, but every emotion are things that we're supposed to have and that they're just different degrees of energy. It's what you do with that energy. So, um, you can be really angry about, you know, youth suicide and foster care and youth corrections and, and experiences that um, have happened in multiple families. And 
you can take that energy, which is literally biologically, um, it comes with adrenaline and different other things that happen in your body to give you more strength and more determination, and then direct that to what can I do to help? And, and so I've never abandoned that anger um, and or sadness or any of that stuff when I see bad things happen to our people because I think we need to be the soft place to fall for our people. And that only comes if we embrace all of our emotions. If I can't speak in the media about her, how horrific it is about murder to missing Indigenous women and girls and say so with anger and um, compassion in my voice and sadness, um, then, then people stop caring. People act like, oh, well, this is just another news item. And by the way, about the weather and about the news and another thing and about the stocks, like we have to be able to show and express and feel all of these emotions. And I always suggest to youth what those elders suggested to me, embrace that anger, use it and redirect it into, you know, use that energy and put it into something. It could be something for your physical health. It could be sports. It could be speaking out. It could be writing. It could be research. It could be just learning more for now. It could be spending time with uh, people online. So maybe you don't have in your immediate circle people that you can learn from, but now everything that we're doing is online. It's in videos, it's in blogs, it's, you know, there's other forms in which we can connect with people. And I, I would say do that because there will come a time and a place, even if you don't feel like it right now, even if you don't know your path right now, there will be a time and a place where you see your path very clearly. And for now, listening and learning and redirecting that energy is a warrior thing to do. Great, Winona. Oh, I think you're on mute. I see that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I, I agree with Pam. And then I also have to say that, um, you know, I'm older. So people say, I just say, I'm just wilier now. <laughs> I mean, when you're older, you just get like wily as could be, you know, because you got to like outthink them, which usually don't take much if they're like some of those guys, they're like all dead set in their idea. And you're like, oh, miss that, huh? You know, so that's part of it is, is like summon up all your like thinking, you know, and your, through your heart and through like all of those things so that, you know, you're thinking about because sometimes you respond direct with their anger and I don't know. I like to like, kind of like, I mean, sometimes I just fly right back at them, you know, oh my, and then sometimes I'm like, let me just let you stew on that for a minute, buddy. <laughs> right. And then you come at them, you know, a little later, they, they act all smug, you know, and then you're like, you know, you know, so I, mean, I just think that like, there's different ways, but you know, um, also I always heard that one of my friends, a uh, good friend of mine, um, Haunani K. Trask, she, she used to say, living well is the best revenge. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think let us practice our Minobamata Zewan. Let us practice our good life. You know, a lot of these people are just sad and miserable, sad people. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, you know, that's we, we need to move past that. You know, maybe not my bags to carry, though. You know, y'all yeah. might need to carry your own bags. I might not carry those because I'm, I'm done, you know, but aside from that, you know, be, you know, be, let's just be just awesome in our lives. Don't let their stuff get on you. So I, that's kind of part of my practice, my best. I, I, work, with, 
I work with many people in the child welfare system here in Winnipeg, um, people, mostly Indigenous peoples who are working in the child welfare system. You can imagine how difficult that must be. 90% of the child welfare system, Indigenous kids, most of them uh, forcibly removed. Cindy Blackstock talks about that. Anyways, a very difficult job for people and many of our relatives who are good people. And one of the things that I try to teach is that uh, is that every reaction from addiction to anger to even, even self uh, defeating behavior, shame, that's all normal. And all of it is a strength. And meaning that there are strength to be found in all of those steps, even addiction where, you know, people are trying to escape from that trauma. That's a strength. That's, that's a step that people are trying to take. Now, if we could harness that in a more productive way and show people that there's better ways to, to confront your feelings of shame. And I mean, that begins with a position of all of this is normal and it takes the judgment out of it. And particularly what I think it's, it does is it, it reminds our, our people are remarkable remarkable people at every step of the way. Um, there's a few YouTube questions. I'm gonna do them quick fire away. So I'm just gonna do one to each one of you. Um, uh, Winona, uh, there's a question from YouTube. I'm just gonna read it. Uh, what's your opinion on geoengineering, uh, AKA climate modification? Uh, why are we as native communities looking past this very destructive technology? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you shouldn't do dumb stuff, you know? <laughs> That's kind of my philosophy, you know. It's kind of like I raise a lot of boys, man. And you have, I don't know, you're you're one, you know, and you raise them and they're like, I'm gonna do this. They're like, no, you aren't, that's a dumb idea. And that's what I feel like half of this is like a bunch of white guys sitting around, like, hey, let's try that, huh? Oh, let's try that too. It's like, no, that's dumb. So, you know, mother mom, mom said no. So that's what I think about geoengineering. Huh? I said I hope that's the title of your new book. Let's not do dumb stuff. Let's not do dumb stuff, yeah. That's my motto. <laughs> um, okay, Pam, quick hitter for you is what's your recent thoughts on Trudeau's recent climate action announcement? Uh, you could feel free to tie, it, to tie in anything involving uh, Trudeau's recent announcements involving dealing with any aspect really involving, uh, uh, you know, commitments to climate change or lack thereof. Well, okay, uh, with regards to any politicians announcements on the climate, show me your plan, show me all the steps and show me your accountability measures. Don't say we're going to be, you know, X, Y, Z free by 2050. Um, oh my goodness, we're in so much trouble if we wait for 2050 for anything. Similarly, 2030, yeah, it's not really good for that either. What is your plan for 2021? What are you going to do in 2021? Show me that you have the steps there. You show me that that's linked to measurable outcomes and show me how that is good enough to save us. Don't say, oh, by 2023, we're gonna meet this accord and that accord, all the accords that you haven't met to date. Like, I don't wanna hear it. I want to see the steps and the measurables and how that's enough. And if it's not enough, I don't even want to see your press release. I'm literally going to hit delete. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the only solution that Trudeau's coming up with in terms of getting out of this the economic uh, hole that the country will be in after the pandemic is infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. And what does that turn out to be? That's development. That turns out to be Indigenous health resources, uh, Indigenous land claims being trampled upon, yes. uh, more and more uh, develop, so-called development projects, and then Indigenous peoples will be posited as the enemy of the state because they're demanding things like adequate consultation. You know, I mean, the like, the, I think that the climate change announcements that happened are undermined by the 
commitments to infrastructure as being the only method out. Whereas we have an opportunity, Winona said the great reset now, um, and we could re retrain, we could reestablish, we could re reset the economy. Um, all right, so there's two more quick hitters uh, from YouTube, and I just want to throw them at you. Although Winona looks like you're running out the house. Looks like you're running. <laughs> and you're on mute too. So uh, maybe, well, I was going to ask you Winona, but um, maybe you can give a quick answer to this. Uh, people are asking, people about asking about your thoughts on the U.S. election. Uh, it looks as though Biden is going to is going to be the presidential uh, uh, nominee, whether the guy leaves or not. The new the guy that's in there now, uh, he's probably going to beeline right to prison. I don't know, but we can only hope. You know, we can only hope that he goes to prison. You know, that would be the, what should be happening. You know, well, what do you think? how did you feel about the election? I guess that's what people are asking on YouTube. Oh, how did the, well, you know, I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I'm a Green, you know, and uh, I mean, this is really the situation of kind of like the lesser of two evils. But, you know, we were all voting because we knew that Trump was get, had to get out of there. And so, as you saw, Native people turned out in droves and, in fact, made sure that Trump that Trump lost in Arizona and in Wisconsin in northern Minnesota, the same thing, 90% pro-Biden, highest voter turnout in history in this country. People voting against Trump. You know, do I wish that there was better leadership? Yeah, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. I mean, you know, in, in, in the spectrum of, of white guys who's going to run for president, he was like 100% better. But you know what? We're going to work with this and we're going to push him. I mean, Biden doesn't want to talk about the Green New Deal, but we all do. You know, what we want is the leadership of, you know, AOC, we want the leadership of, of, you know, the women of color who are in Congress, because those are the ones that are showing us the way. And uh, we're going to we're going to work with them. Uh, important note for uh, I and other many other people have written about this, but it was indigenous peoples and Native American voters that were the were the tipping points in Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, and uh, almost in North Carolina. And so to, to the tune where we, it was really Native American voters coming out in droves to support Biden that results the end of Trump. So I want America to think about that. Of course, there are many Native Americans who vote for Trump in Oklahoma, and I was I live there, and that's just bizarro, kind of bizarro world. I don't I don't get that, but anyways, we'll just leave that there. Um, okay, quick last quick hitter to Pam. Uh, you've asked I've, you've been asked this question all the panels we've been on, uh, so I know you can do this in a quick answer. Uh, what do you suggest to non-Indigenous people who to, who can contribute to de colonization in Canada, because many people are uncomfortable with the term reconciliation. Uh, what can you say to non-Indigenous people? Uh, this is asked by uh, someone named called Rustic Beat, which is a pretty good name. <laughs> um, do everything, okay? Forget about semantics, forget about how it's being categorized or portrayed or all the rhetoric. Uh, do everything. And that means learn more, do more. It means donate. It means contribute in valuable ways. It means be respectful. Um, and that could mean everything from, you know, monetary donations, donating research, um, IT skills, you name it, whatever your background is, whatever form you work in, you can contribute. And not just in one thing, in one way for a short limited time, or, or please never just during Native American Heritage Month or Indigenous Peoples Day here in Canada, but always, always be thinking, what is it that I'm doing to undo the harm that's being done currently and to undo the historical harm? And I have failed to meet anyone yet who doesn't have something to contribute and uh, in a meaningful way and in a sustained way. I mean, 
jeepers. Think about all the people that are on school boards deciding whether or not they're going to allow Indigenous curriculum. And you might be the lonely voice, but and that might be difficult, and that might be challenging, but imagine how it is for us. You know, and it and sometimes it always starts with one voice and then you find out, oh, look, my colleague also feels the same way. And now you've got two and you've got the power of two to be moving forward. So I say do everything, do it all the time. Don't stop. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. Sometimes you'll offend people. Sometimes you won't use the right word. And personally, I don't care. I don't care what the words are. I don't care. Like it's that you're trying and you're doing your best and you learn from that. And take the lead of Indigenous peoples. You know, that's really critical. Don't go off and be a magical savior and think you know what's best for Indigenous peoples. There's lots of stuff out there now. You don't even have to, you know, go to university. You don't have to go to school to know any of this stuff. It's all readily available online. So learn more, do more, and do it all the time. Do everything. Yeah, the, the message I often give is just stand beside us. Yeah. And uh, I mean, sometimes we're going to need you to, to step to speak up too. But most times, just stand beside us because it's so it's so lonely doing this work. It's also so combative. We're often targeted. There's a people keep us from positions. They put us in terrible positions. Sometimes our own people uh, turn against us yep. uh, when we speak up um, on issues involving resource projects and so on. Anyways, okay, let's go to our last student question right here, uh, and I'm gonna uh, it's with Sarah. And um, for some reason, I cannot have you. Put it so I can't spotlight you, Sarah. Oh, you got to turn your video on, I think. Oh, there you are. Okay. Now I'm going to spotlight you. There we go. Right there. There we go. Go ahead, Sarah. Introduce okay. yourself. Yes. Hello. Um, my name is Sarah. Um, I'm a Métis person from Winnipeg, Manitoba, born and raised. I'm doing my master's at the University of Manitoba. Um, my question is just a whole bunch of little random notes, so I apologize if I get lost along the way, but I will try to summarize it as best as I can. Um, basically, um, I guess what caught my attention initially in this discussion was just the talk, um, Winona, when you had said, like, how do white men have the time to do this? Like, they must not be busy if they're just, like, being able to produce all this writing. Um, so that kind of stuck in my head, um, as I know, um, uh, for Indigenous peoples, this work can be quite exhausting, as colonialism is just never-ending as what it seems. It's just like this continual structure that basically does anything to undermine Indigenous peoples and their lives. And I also recognize the importance of the work that you do because a lot of the times it's about life and death for Indigenous peoples. So I was just wondering if you could speak to the challenges um, I guess that you encounter when writing about activism and like how you're able to formalize these ideas while also continuously um, like putting your bodies on the line and engaging in this work. Like if there's any way that you have found where you can kind of, I guess, like, um, like to basically tips, tips and tricks for do like documenting the work that you do. Um, Cause I know it is quite exhausting um, to have to basically like reassert these like same phenomenons and all that kind of stuff. So if you could um, just basically talk about that, if that made any sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It did. <laughs> you know, and I was just thinking about one of the things I like about Zoom is you're right here, we're having a little conversation, you know, you and I, and I think that that's really great, Sarah. I mean, it is kind of this, you know, really intimate forum in its own way, although we're all in different places, you know, so I just wanted to appreciate that. 
You know, to, to answer your question, I mean, I write about like what I do and what happens. A lot of my writing is about that. So let me tell you a story. You know, we're giving tours of the proposed Enbridge line to all these people. And they're like, you know, they want to come see and they've never been out of the city. But this is like COVID friendly time. You could drive up in your little car, meet me. I'll take you to see the man camp and the pipe yards. So I'm over there at this like redneck town of Cromwell at the gas station. And I'm preparing for my water protector tour. You can look us up, welcome water protectors. We're offering tours of pipeline now. Welcome water protectors, because we feel like everybody should see it while, while Canada tries to steal all their land and water. So I'm sitting there and I'm, sta and I'm standing outside. It's a pretty nice day in the parking lot. And pretty soon these cars start showing up and there's like, there's the church people coming to see us, the church people. And they all have Priuses, I kid you not. It was like, so there I am in my pickup truck and then we're showing these, these people around and it's like me with like seven Priuses following me. And, and you know, it's they're all out there and we're gonna go to the pipe yard. And, you know, it's not like you can be discreet with seven Priuses, you know, it's like, <laughs> so my point is, is that, you know, it's kind of this moment in history where you're like, it's the Prius army to defeat the Enbridge pipeline. You can't make this stuff up. You know, it's just something that just happened. And so I kind of like take notes and reflect on it. I laugh a lot. Cause like, what you gonna do? I mean, we look like, we look pretty funny, but we look cool because we have Priuses, you know? And uh, my point is, is that I kind of reflect on it and then I end up writing about it. You know, I kind of journal and I write, like I said, I write notes on like backs of paper and I, you know, all that stuff. And then I get home and I'm like, takes a while to figure out how to write it you know, where, where, where it fits in, but that's how, that's how I do it. And, you know, there's a lot of things you just keep, you know, keep an eye out, you know, and then, then you kind of go in there and like, what's that? In what context is that? You know, that's how I kind of do it. Thanks for your question though. And very nice to see you in, in Winnipeg. Thank you. Go ahead, Pam. Did you, uh, did you want to add to that or? No, I think Winona's answer was perfect. And I literally do the same thing. I mean, now that we have phones, I mean, I have 8,000 notebooks everywhere in my house with a million scribbles on them. But now when uh, Negan, you say something really hardcore and awesome, I'll just like type that in my note in my book and it's like, or on my phone. And it's like, great. They might not make sense. They might be our jarbled, all different things, different people said, but um you learn a lot from listening to people and taking notes is like, here's my record. So I never forget these amazing things that Winona said or Negan said, or all of the other people in all of our territories. And so that's kind of how I do it. One of the things that, that has happened, and I think technology is part of it, but um, is when I was in the 1970s growing up, uh, and you know, late 1970s, when I was very young, and I remember when I was four years old, it was 1980. And my dad used to take me around to the friendship centers. And I was always kind of wondering like why, like my visits with my father uh, was always just going to the friendship center. I was like, dad, do I ever get time with you? And for years, I kind of was, uh, you know, kind of resentful about that. But then I, for years, I've realized since that all the people now that I'm in my 40s, I draw upon what I witnessed in the 1980s from seeing all those incredible activism, the network and the feasting that happened at that time. But then also now they're all my uncles and my aunties and my grandmothers. 
and they all kick my butt when I need a kick butt kicking. And they also stand beside me when I'm out there on the, you know, the front lines doing the marches here, or, or you know, what, they'll send me a message on YouTube. They saw me on whatever TV show or whatever, like just, it is so nice to not be alone. And uh, that's what we're doing now on technology. I don't know more. Like I would not know Pam if it wasn't for, I don't know more. And because of all of the support and networking that we did together, um, talking on technology, uh, we didn't have Zoom in those days, but we were talking on the phone, texting each other, supporting each other. I would never have known Winona unless uh, she, we had both gone to the same ceremony grounds. And it's the it's the, the these technologies are way are being adapted. And Sarah, to add to what I'd say is, you know, your cohort also the ways that we try to facilitate as a department to make that family atmosphere. Uh, is really something important because it's pedagogy. It's not just nice. It's like it's indigenous pedagogy of how we create the revolution. How do we continue our nations? You know, stay close, tied to one another as tight as possible. So, so we watch for that question, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, I'll take you off the. I'll take you off the hot seat. <laughs> so, um, uh, what, I'm going to invite each one of you to uh, uh, to say a few words. Uh, maybe you could just say something about that we haven't touched upon. Um, I've thrown a lot of questions at you. Students have thrown questions at you. But, and then, you know, of course, this is a book launch. So we are trying to get people to look at the YouTube links for the books. Uh, Pam's book, Warrior Life. Um, uh, Winona's book, How to Be a Water Protector. Take a look, both Fernwood Publishing. Uh, we see James Patterson's on our call here from Fernwood Publishing. Thanks to James for all the hard work in, in bringing these books into the world and, and distributing them and so on. So order the book. Uh, but let's start off with Pam. Uh, any last words on, on the event for today, but also, you know, go check out the book. Yeah, I just, I really want to say thank you to everybody who takes the time to support all of us doing this in whatever way. It could literally just be a text, uh, it could be a like on social media, it can be a retweet of something we've written or a report. All of these things are really helpful and all of the people who are online wanting to learn more. I mean, I think that makes a really huge difference. And it is, you know, of course, I hope everyone goes out and buys Winona's book and goes out and buys my book. But even if it's, a, you know, not about buying these books, but it's about just learning more through all of the open access resources that are out there, I think that makes a huge difference. And please keep in mind that there's nothing that I've ever said in any of my books that actually is my own unique, original thought. Everything that I know comes from my family and my family's family and my relatives and our, you know, fellow brothers and sisters and everybody in all of our nations. I mean, these are all things we've been saying for decades. We just say them in different ways with different, you know, mannerisms from time to time in different contexts. But this, this work that we do is your work. It's everything that we've learned from all of you. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. Winona, I think you're good. Yeah, there you yeah. go. So miigwech as well, you know, a real privilege to hang out with both of you. Pamela and Egon, you know, just really grateful for, uh, you know, the time and uh, and also the forum. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people worked hard to make this possible and I appreciate that. You know, I don't know how all that magical stuff works, but I, I know that magical things happen. And, um, you know, in that, you know, I feel like we're in this moment. Take a breath. We're going into winter. You know, it's going to be a brutal winter, some places politically and in a lot of other places, but also it's a moment when we go inside 
and, and you know, tell our stories, but also think about what we're going to plant in the spring. Yeah. You know, what new ideas are we planting in the spring? What seeds are we planting in the spring? What hope? You know, what are we going to do come spring? Because she will come. She will come. And so I appreciate the time to share some of my, you know, writing and my, and, uh, you know, my book to be, a, to be a water protector. And I especially, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to share the privilege of, of doing my best to tell some stories, you know, of some people who are pretty darn courageous. And, uh, you know, let's keep supporting them and um, let's do that. Let's, let's be water protectors. Uh, huge miigwech to both of you. Uh, what a beautiful way to end of thinking about what we're planting in the spring. Um, that, that, when you said that, it actually gave me a lot of hope. So, and there's been a lack of hope uh, in lots of ways. So, <laughs> Molly, we're going to hand it off to you, Molly, from the uh, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, uh, one of our partners for the event. Uh, Molly's going to say a few words to bring us to a close. Yes, um, another big thank you. Um, I just got a little emotional. Well, the whole time was emotional. And uh, yeah, I think I really needed this. And you have so much love in the chat of the YouTube. I, I hope uh, you get a chance to read that of people really appreciating your words and just um, being inspired by this. I agree that uh, we need to take this time to uh, um Enter the portal in a good way, as, as you were saying, Winona. So um, thank you so much, Nikon, for hosting um, this event. And thank you to the students. I loved your questions. Uh, it was just so wonderful having the students uh, here today. We really, really appreciate that. And I did want to mention uh, before we leave that Nikon's um, part of a project we do every uh, year here in Winnipeg called the State of the Inner City Report. And um, this is a collaboration with the community and Egon's writing a chapter about the impacts of COVID on um, urban Indigenous people as a reflection uh, by walking with the Mama Bear clan about what that's been like. So um, that's going to be launched on December, December 10th. And I'll put the information in the chat if you're interested in joining us online for that. Um, and uh, thank you. Please subscribe to Pam's got a great YouTube channel. I know all of our uh, Winona, Pam and Nikon are all on social media. Please uh, support uh, all of our speakers. I look forward to buying and reading your books. It's going to be great. And um, this is one of our first videos on this YouTube channel. So if you could like us and subscribe to us, there will be more coming from this channel. So um, yeah, lots of love to you all and everybody out there. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you all so much for listening. Please keep sending me your podcast requests and I'll try to cover as many as I can. Thank you also to the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives Manitoba and Fernwood Publishing for sending me the audio and video to post on my social media channels. I'll also post a link to the original YouTube video in the show notes. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliug. <laughs>